Hello, and welcome to Desert Rain Community Radio. This is Dorian Mason reporting in for another episode. Uh, David Morrison and I sit down and talk about Richard Foster and specifically two of his books, uh, The Streams of Living Water and Celebration of Discipline. Uh, I, I say that wrong about a hundred times during the episode. It's Celebration of Discipline, not Disciplines. So uh, that's a little correction to get us started. And uh, once again, thank you to Jacob at Monk Drums for those uh, drums you hear in the background. Uh, Diego, once again, for all his great uh, editing. Uh, He's at Recording Moving Studios. Also, thank you, Star City Studio Productions. Um, Lastly, uh, if you like this podcast, please tell a friend about it and spread the word. And uh, if you want to hear more or learn more about Desert Rain Community, you can go uh, to theruined.com and uh, find more information about it. Uh, find some writings by uh, David, who's the other gentleman on this uh, on this podcast. So, and also you can check out drcrpod.com. Um, so yeah, let's get into it. Hello, howdy. Welcome to Desert Rain Community Radio. I'm here with David Morrison. Salutations. Ooh, yeah. I like it. I like it. Uh, my name is Dorian Mason. Uh, thank you once again for tuning in to another uh, episode. Uh, to, on today's episode, uh, David Morrison and I will be talking about Richard Foster, uh, specifically a couple of his books that we'll be um, sort of delving into is Celebration of Discipline and uh, Streams of Living Water. Um, so with that being said, Mr. Morrison, how, how did you first come across? For me personally, I first came across Richard Foster through you. Oh, is so that right? I'm curious, yeah, I'm curious to know how you, you first stumbled into his works and writings and such. Yeah, I don't uh, – I was pretty young, maybe 18, 17, 18 – and had just uh, started attending a, a, the charismatic evangelical church and probably went to a, a Christian bookstore. And that was probably the book mm. that drew my attention and was a home run right away. Celebration of Discipline, which he wrote in 1979. That, yeah, so this would have been the mid-80s when I encountered it. Which is, which is an amazing story because I owned the book celebration of discipline celebration yeah celebration of disciplines i think i might have said that wrong the first time before you told me about richard foster and it was a Mm. similar story i was there's a a used bookstore in downtown cruces called coaz and i was walking through the uh religion slash spiritual section and there was a a quaker section Mm. like less than a shelf and that red and black it's a very pronounced cover, very like catch your eye cover. And I remember I bought it and I bought it because, uh, you know, I read his Quaker background in the mm. um, sort of in the the cover that fold. It's a, it's a hardback version. And as we discussed last week with Parker Palmer, we got into Quakerism and all, and all that. And, and Richard Foster falls under that Quaker umbrella. Yeah. 
So I bought the book and had it sitting on my bookshelf for weeks, maybe even some months when you brought it up to me. Huh. It was very interesting. That is interesting. How that, uh, how that crossed paths in my life as far as it jumping out to me and then you bringing it to my attention. Along with you also, in the same conversation, I think we also talked about streams of living water. So, mm-hmm. um, so going back to your first encounter with it at this young age, what, what about that book once you started reading it and, and studying it and such, uh, what, why did it, um, what do you, how did it resonate with your life at that point? Yeah, well, you know, it probably was connected to, uh, I guess what you'd call my conversion experience, uh, the epiphany of the sacred heart of Jesus when I was 12. Mm. And then recently at that point, the experience, what some call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and so I felt this intense longing and loving toward and from God. And, and I just wanted more of that. I wanted to experience that, wanted it to transform me, wanted it just wanted to know God, a deep thirst mm-hmm. to experience and know God. And the spiritual disciplines just seemed to call out to me. It was a natural, a natural thing. These are the the avenues, if you will, to uh to view, to behold the sacred heart of Jesus. And so that was why I was so attracted to that. And, and can you just give us, um, maybe you don't maybe have to list all of them, but just examples of some of the disciplines that he talks about. Yeah, well, he he presented them in a way, usually, usually when you think of fasting, uh, submission, uh, deep prayer, um, you think of of monks hidden away in, a, mm-hmm. in the desert in Sinai or Egypt. And so it seems inaccessible to someone in the 1980s, right. grew up with MTV and pop culture. And and so so he made it accessible. He was saying, this is for the, uh, normal, everyday kinds of believers uh, to follow. You can be, you know, live, a, for the most part, a 20th century, at that time, 20th century, mm-hmm. um, right. Life and as a student or someone who has a job or somebody, a parent, and and you can these things are for you as well. And so it was, it's very democratic. It was very uh, accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's written for the the common person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the two the two disciplines that I probably got out of that book. Well, and I th- maybe before I go down that path, one of the things you've mentioned to me in the past is about how this book is a textbook for you. Yeah, so it became one of those books that stayed with me mm-hmm. f- through the, uh, decades. Recent years, not so much. Uh, yeah. Not the, maybe the last 10 years, but definitely my teens, 20s, and early 30s. And then his second book. So he, he actually had two books, The Streams of Living Water, also mm-hmm. transformed my worldview in a significant way. Uh, seeing the vastness of the church, seeing yeah. the vastness of traditions and spiritual streams. Uh, that that can access you and you can access them. Right. Not be afraid of them. The um, because over the last three or four years, something in that range, um, celebration of disciplines has become some sort of a textbook for me as well. And and the two that really got me, or at least his perspective got me this this being able to write to the average person. Yeah. Um, was fasting. You know, I, I tried to fast in my past and it was just, I couldn't really see 
sort of the connection. So I could see the secular side of like the quote unquote health benefits that can yeah, come from. Yeah, that's popular oh, now. Yeah. But the, the numbers, the, the eight, eight and 24 or whatever it is. Yeah, I don't even remember. Yeah. There's so many, yeah, there's so yeah. many different versions of it. But the the spiritual, religious aspect of it, I, I couldn't really understand until I read his chapter about fasting. And anytime you feel hungry, this is just an example out of, you know, a tidbit out of that. Yeah, yeah. But anytime you feel hungry or tempted to eat, to remember that, to remember that's the presence of God. Like it's a reminder of the presence yeah, of yeah. God. And, and that was a big breakthrough. I mean, that chapter was a big breakthrough that not just that tidbit, but, um, and the second thing was meditation, mm. you know, for me, or at least meditation in a Christian context. Right. I had done a bunch of meditation retreats and stuff, but it was all Eastern based, uh, which is beautiful. And, and, that those practices has changed my life, but it was a similar thing. Like I could see meditation in the context of Eastern religions. And I understood that. And the same thing, you know, the secular like health benefits of meditation and all yeah, this other yeah. stuff. But I, I really desired that Christian connection to silence and meditation. Yeah. And uh, his, that chapter and um, celebration of disciplines, like helped me, cross that bridge yeah and i'd even sit i've even sat in quaker meetings at that point mm. and and still couldn't really understand the bridge across and he just he breaks it down in such it's not simple terms but it's accessible terms like yeah saying. exactly and you know and a lot of times in at least the protestant experience probably maybe even the catholic parish experience they they kind of there's kind of a negativity around the practicing these disciplines mm. of prayer. And if it's not, if it doesn't have an immediate pragmatic uh, connection to it. So, so a lot of times people will say, well, don't, don't do fasting. They're, they're afraid of these things. Uh, silence, especially don't, don't do silence. They'll say, do a quiet time maybe, <laughs> but don't, don't do a prayer of silence. Why, why do you think there, why do you think there is that fear of, of fasting and silence? Because I think with all of these spiritual disciplines and any spiritual path that you're doing, that you're going down, uh, any effort that you're making to, quote unquote, get closer to God, uh, to respond to God, there are pitfalls to them. And the pitfalls can be big and, and deep. And so people that who, who have experienced them or have been uh, around people that, that were reacting out of these pitfalls, may have experienced abuse, manipulation, uh, those mm, kinds of things in, in, right, a, right. in a group, in a church. And and so they just say, stay away from it altogether. Um, you know, sitting in silence can be terrifying for people mm -hmm, because yeah. the person they're trying to escape is themselves. And unfortunately, that's why many respond to conversion to Christ uh, Christ will somehow get me out of this oh, earthly. Okay. There's an escapism, which is right. a pitfall of itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it's a pitfall speaking unto pitfall. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, God can get me, can free me from myself. And it, well, it doesn't quite work that way. You, you still have to, to face yourself. And uh, yeah. Well, and and my experience, and this, I, I, yeah, let's go down this rabbit hole, but. 
so having that fear of facing myself is true, right? I've, I've experienced that fear of facing myself, but I've also, um, and I don't, not quite sure how to articulate this, but as I've grown in my relationship with the divine, that relationship with God has brought me closer to myself. Right. And in not, the end, not, it does. Yeah, not in a, like a fleshy, like, oh, I'm a big... Right. I'm a self-enhanced, self-self, selfie-selfie-self. I'm not, I'm not, you know, but like being comfortable in my own, we talk about that in recovery, yeah, being making comfortable peace. in our own skin. Yeah. And um, there, there needs to be a, a peace that needs to be made with your life, you know, and, and so, and that's a scary process. It's a difficult process for a lot of people. And, you know, and, and there's the, one of the pitfalls is also to, you end up with a superiority complex or you end up with right. being a super spiritual kind a of guru. person. Yeah, yeah. You think you're a guru or some sort of a you teacher. You put that on your, on your, uh, on you your know, front porch. Like, like John Wimber, when he had his first encounter with God in the Las Vegas desert, he came back saying, I'm in touch with the supernatural. Oh, you yeah, know? yeah. So, there, it's yeah. A, so your ego will immediately take over these things. And, and it is. It is a wild ride to... To uh, it's a barrel ride down the the falls of your uh, ego and your pride and and early on your ego should step in because that's all you know it has to but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's part of the process you know yeah. and so yeah you so those of us on the shore we could say yeah it's a dumb idea to go down over Niagara Falls in a barrel right uh, but you know yeah. we're not the ones who've actually done it so right. or it's like the people and uh, regardless of how you feel about uh, extraterrestrials, but like people that have been claimed to have been abducted by aliens. Yeah. yeah. They usually wear it. A lot of them wear it as a badge of honor. Yeah. Like, like they got themselves abducted. By yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't go around telling people if that happened to me. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, they picked me up. They beamed me up, Scotty. Um, yeah. But so being able to, to, and it's, we don't use the divine power, but tap into this divine power, build a relationship in it in order to be able to, oh, I, to be able to look ourselves in the mirror. And one of my early spiritual mentors, you know, the quote to thine own self be true. Mm -hmm. uh, we would talk about, or he would talk about that and, and he would frame it as, um, you do the work to get to know who you are. It's mm -hmm. presented to yourself, you know, so that you get the, the part of your own self in the quote. Uh, but then it's your responsibility. It's your responsibility to live in integrity. It's your responsibility to stay true. And that, for me, is the difficult yeah. part. Yeah, it's a lifetime. Because I wanted to do the ego stuff. Right. I want to be known as a faster and I appreciate those people in my past who had so much patience, particularly my parents and mm. and, and anybody that knew me uh, in my so, teens so, and twenties. Yeah, yeah, well, let's explore that a little bit. What do you what do you mean in the sense of them having patience with you? Well, because yeah, I was doing these spiritual disciplines, thinking you know, probably presenting myself in a very obnoxious mm. manner, uh, and not being able to help it, you know, but because I had a community around me that at least would put up with me, uh, it, it, you know, got me right. through. And so they loved, they loved you through it. Anyways, yeah. Right? And even looking back now, it wasn't until recent years, I realized, you know, these three influential 
people, John Wimber, Richard Foster, and Parker Palmer, were all Quakers. Right. And so I didn't even realize, and Quakerism is about being true and plain and being authentic yeah. and, and uh, you know, and being ordinary, you know, and loving the ordinary, loving the, the what uh, we'd call in Christianity the incarnational life, which is the divinely infused ordinary life. Mm. And uh, not a, not becoming a spiritual superstar, or spectacular, and you know, and becoming a guru kind mm. of thing. So, yeah. I, so that influence was definitely there for me. Well, and I think the way they were able to embrace, and when I say they, those three people particularly, but at least Quakers that I I have come in contact with and and had have conversations with, their ability to embrace the ordinary yeah. is very. Um, Obvious and not not in a uh, patting themselves on you know no. sometimes you encounter people that pat themselves on the back for being an average person or a regular yeah. or you know like the pastors that wear the the no fear too off well, that dates me a little bit <laughs> <laughs> the cool t shirts and the and the yeah, skinny jeans yeah. or whatever you know and and the, the hipster pastors from the facade circa two thousand and five yes exactly <laughs> yeah, exactly and so but no they're just they're just, they're usually active in their community, yeah. embracing whatever is they can embrace around them as far as community work, yeah, and and, um, and then just going about their day. Exactly, and they don't brag about Richard Nixon being a Quaker. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I would after our last our last episode, I was like, ah, oh, I forgot to bring up Nixon. <laughs> Peace with honor. <laughs> yes, everyone, you got that. You heard I'm it here not first. Not a crook. <laughs> you heard it here first. Our our uh, our buddy Richard Nixon. Yeah. Uh, I guess he was a Quaker. Oh, allegedly, if, if yes. If you ever if you ever stop being a Quaker, um, and they embrace him too. Yeah. Even oh, yeah. even with all his faults and pitfalls. Yeah, and I think his I think his presidential <laughs> library is right next to the church he grew up in. Really, I I know, it's oh, it's in the same Yorba Linda. It's the same yeah. uh, Quaker church that John Wimber went to. Okay, okay. In Yorba yeah. Linda, California. Right. <laughs> oh, God. I'm, I'm glad you were. Thank you for working that in. Um, so learning and using the the celebration of disciplines as a textbook, and, and you've, you brought up the uh, – and we'll delve into it a little bit deeper, but – um, I also want to sort of step into the other book that you brought up earlier, Streams of Living Water. Yeah. And kind of what, if you could give us a quick synopsis of that and how that uh, deepened your your relationship with your practice and prayer life and all that. Yeah, because it's, you know, when you're involved, super involved the way I was in church life and particularly the, the charismatic uh, stream, if you will, um, well, or evangelical stream, you tend to get a myopic view that our church is the one true church. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, at least we did. Uh, I think, I think like our worship common. is the coolest. Right. We're on the cutting edge of A, B, and C. Uh, and so you get this very inward look uh, where it's so close up that it's blurred out. And but you think you see, and it's mm-hmm. you're in that spiritual dilemma of what Jesus called the you know you're the blind leading the blind mm-hmm. kind of thing, and uh, you're in an echo chamber. So you don't read any, you know. There's there's a lot of gatekeeping that goes on. Uh, as far as the 
information and literature that yeah. people engage with. Yeah, like, like when I was a kid, you we were, we were told to only read books that had imprimatur on them, <laughs> stamped by the Vatican themselves, and so you know, and evangelicals do the exact same thing, right. you know, and um, and so I was in that kind mm -hmm. of viewpoint where you you think your own little world is the world, and so. And I can see why some protectionism. Yeah, yeah. Would, would it's very protective yeah. and insulated and that kind of thing. And um, and so that book really broke out a wider view for me of that the, the church is very old. It's 2,000 years old. Mm -hmm. And it's very diverse, extremely diverse in doctrine, in practice, in look, uh, in, in uh, aesthetics, in every aspect that you can think right. of. It's a multitude and a diverse uh, uh, church body. And so it, it, it just helped me embrace that, that view and begin to really appreciate other streams and traditions. And, uh, and so my view grew more universal. So what were some of the specific things that maybe you gleaned from that as far as like the traditions maybe you weren't familiar with or you didn't understand? The background of yeah, kind of yeah, help me put it in a a better con a more mm -hmm. uh, understandable context for me, you know. Uh, so he celebrates these different traditions, and he and he takes, if I remember right, he takes a a uh, a biblical example of say the charismatic stream. So he takes a biblical example of that, uh, and then he'll take a a, an, a very historical example. Uh, so for the charismatic, he used uh, St. Francis of Assisi okay. as, the, as an example of the charismatic stream. Oh, I see. And then he'll take a contemporary, and I, I can't remember who he... Who he I, uh, yeah, it was William Seymour, the, who I would consider the founder of the Pentecostal movement okay. in America, the Azusa Street Revival in 1906. So he'll, so he'll take someone like William Seymour from the Pentecostals, and then he'll... He'll celebrate someone like uh, Billy Graham or Augustine in another in the evangelical stream, which seem very opposite, right? Uh, in in streams, uh, uh, and then he'll yeah. Then the social justice, which in our charismatic experience, that social justice was very unknown to our mm. to our detriment, um, which which unfortunately I think is a, uh, a form of white supremacism that we didn't acknowledge at that time and didn't want to have those conversations. Well, to be fair too, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, the vineyard has sort of shifted well, uh, yeah, with that. In recent decades, yeah. Right, towards the social justice. Absolutely, yeah. for sure, yeah. And I appreciate that about vineyard. Right, and yeah. For sure, not just because the microphone's on. <laughs> <laughs> well, not when the microphones are off, those are, the only yeah. reason I know that is because you've shared yeah. that insight with me. Yeah, and so on. Yeah, so on the social justice stream, he he brings up, uh, I, you know, Dorothy Day. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, in the, in the Catholic the workers Catholic movement, movement, and so these are extreme, diverse uh, traditions, if you will, mm -hmm. and and, the, and so the problem is when you're myopic the way I was in the '80s and '90s. Uh, you, you think your group is the, the group that God is going to go talk to. And, right. and you don't see that you're just in another tradition. You think, well, no, no, we're biblical. That's, that's the myopic yeah. view. We're biblical. We're, we're, we're right. the ones. We're spirit-filled. Um, 
our doctrine is correct and our practice is right. And so you don't see yourself as a part of a tradition. A stream uh, within a larger river. Exactly. And once you see that, you begin to to open up and, uh, you know, and you have a more ecumenical view, an interspiritual view, and you're able to talk to human beings a lot better. <laughs> well, and it's, I, I think it's important. I mean, I, I know I've shared it with you how I've sort of drifted from different denominations. And one of the traditions that I, I, I guess I just acknowledge, I, so icons. Right. I yeah. never really understood the importance or the significance of icons until I uh, started talking and hanging out with a, uh, an Orthodox priest. Exactly. You know, and he explained the fact that, well, he's like, well, yeah, it is, it is a picture, it is art, but the purpose of it is to be a mirror. So you see yourself in whatever the icon yeah, is. Engaged. And, and what does that reflect back into your your spiritual life, your uh, yeah. your understanding of whatever story is being depicted or whatever saint is being depicted. And ever since then, not only icons, but just art in general is a whole different experience. Yeah, it comes alive. You, yeah. That's, that was my experience as well. And it was because of Foster and Henry Nowen and probably Brian McLaren. He wrote a book called uh, A Generous Orthodoxy in the early 2000s that really, again, reinforced that idea of... Of uh, you know, I, there there are many traditions of prayer, of seeing scripture and seeing the world, and, mm. and iconography is was a powerful one. Yeah, and is going back to the book. What uh, you said you came across the celebration of disciplines in your your late teens. When did when did streams of living water? When did you sort of start engaging that that book and within your your life? Uh, I'm thinking probably the late '90s, okay. maybe. So I started my view started to expand outward mm -hmm. and then uh I, I think there's a saying i think a, a jesuit thinker I, I forget the name but so the more personal your experience with god becomes that only means the more universal your view will become as well simultaneously it's mm -hmm. so a universal spreading outward widening and it's a uh, and it's becomes even more personal and up close and that's that kind of what happened you know this right. is what happened to me Began to happen to me in the late '90s, early 2000s. And so, would you? Do you think that transformation had already begun when you found the book, or was the book sort of a catalyst? Yeah, who knows? Okay. You know, when the yeah. book finds you, right? <laughs> or did you find the book? It's one of those kinds of things. And, of course. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah. When you're looking for a certain things you start seeing it once you see it you start seeing it everywhere you know yeah, like and you can't unsee it when your neighbor buys a a brand new blue chevy silverado all you see is blue chevy Silverados. <laughs> yeah the, the spiritual life is is very similar yeah. in that way yeah you start seeing it everywhere so so one of the, one of the things that um you pointed out about uh, some of the things that Richard Foster talks about, um, and maybe you can elaborate on, is uh, the importance or, well, and, the importance and um, our reluctance in sort of the Christian life around confession. Mm. And, and what, what uh, your understanding is of, of that paradox. Well, you mean my experience of 
that? Yeah, sure. I mean, in childhood, it was you went to confession. It was a sacrament, and you went to the priest, and the priest had the power to absolve you of your sin and would give you some prayers to recite. Right. That kind of thing. And that that was also my experience in childhood. Yeah. And so, yeah, so then after reading this and seeing an expanded view of, of living authentically, living in a transparency, you know, I, I took to more extreme. In my earlier days, I took to more extreme practices uh, where I would publicly confess mm. my sins uh, to either uh, individuals or sometimes even to a larger group, mm-hmm. to a youth group and even to my to my church. Uh, I just felt it was good for me. And, and so, it, you know, I feel like it kept me earth, uh, earthly uh, centered in that sense, you know, mm-hmm. and it kept me, uh, kept it real, if you will. Um, it, it's, it, there's not always a, uh, uh, a reciprocity in that though. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So well, people it, will take advantage of you. And I, I had to learn that was one of the pitfalls in confession was here. I am being naked in front of people, so to speak. And stepping into that. Yeah. And then they take advantage of me. They're going through my clothes, trying to get my <laughs> wallet, you know, uh, he's got to, he's got to have a 20. We've got dirt on him because he told us, <laughs> he told everybody. So then they'll come back in a conversation later to manipulate or, or to try to fix me or change me or something like that. So do you think, um, maybe that's, so I know in the, in the Catholic, uh, tradition confession is still part of the of the tradition but in other denominations it seems uh almost to be avoided yeah yeah absolutely why, why do you think that is i i think our i think it might be cultural i think our our culture has deified the individual mm. and so you have to protect that individual image that look, the image of my good. individuality has to be protected at all costs and so I'm a Christian. I'm using my Christianity to, at this point, to protect uh, that image that I've that mm. I've projected to people, and so it becomes a it becomes another false idol, if you will, to mm. use biblical language. Um, Brene Brown, uh, I'm sure someone's heard of her. <laughs> <laughs> Does some excellent work she, on on vulnerability and the power right. of it, and she's super. Two very famous TED Talks. Yeah, yeah. And they're, they're books. amazing. Those two yeah. TED Talks. They'll change your life. Yeah, if they you, will. If you can implement what she's talking about. Yeah, in fact, turn this way. off and go, and go listen to that yeah. right now. Jump on that. Because that takes, yeah, the confession, the spiritual discipline of confession to to new heights that, are, uh, that will change your life. And uh, so, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Vulnerability is the key to Christianity. I can't relate to the all-powerful God personally, mm-hmm. but I can truly relate and worship the all vulnerable God. Well, and that it, it's also a matter of, so that old saying when two or more are gathered, they're in the presence of God. And, and I think this confession part of it, when I'm vulnerable and open with another human being, yeah. uh, that, that vulnerability that's happening is God. That is the yeah. divine stepping in. It's the spirit between you. Mm-hmm. And being a part of it. And, and If the group can have a trust with each well, other and, and uh, to not, as James Finley says, to not invade or evade one another. And that's a big if. That's a huge if. Yeah. It's, yeah. The trust has to, has to be there. Yeah, exactly. And it has to be continuously cultivated 
It's not like you just you have trust and then yeah, it's all vulnerable. Which was the age. error in my youth. I would I would just I'm gonna just take my clothes mm-hmm. off, figuratively speaking. I'm yeah, just gonna yeah. be confessional in front of everybody. And and there was probably some desire to be humiliated in that, you know, uh, thinking that I was getting some sort of spiritual points mm. in that, you know, part of the the, but the, the pitfalls fact, of spirituality. I was going to say the fact that you thought you were getting points for yeah, art, exactly. that, that's your points. Yeah, <laughs> Those exactly. Are your points. And so you have to fail through it. Right. Um, and and just to step back half, half a step, uh, earlier when I said that confession is part of the Catholic tradition, I wasn't boosting them up i remember i was in a group conversation several years ago and uh, a woman was talking a woman that had a catholic background was talking about confession and she's like well i couldn't i couldn't say x y and z because i was confessing to my parish uh father my the parish priest Mm. i have to go do that confession with a different one so he doesn't think any less of me oh man and it was very (laughs) you know what i mean like this, this idea of protecting yeah, yeah, Your totally. Image. I did the same thing when I was <laughs> a teenager. All, I'm sure we all did. Yeah. I went to another parish, uh, and I and I specifically one time looked. I was very ashamed of some sexual sin, okay, and uh, dirty thoughts and that right. kind of thing, and uh, and the and the, and the hair was growing on my palms, so to speak. And so I was too embarrassed that because because our parish the walls were too thin, and you could uh, everybody could hear, and and uh, and so it'd be. And so I, I specifically went to another parish where I knew the priest did not speak English, spoke only Spanish, and I didn't speak Spanish. And so <laughs> I got off with like three Hail Marys that day. I, I flubbed the system, oh, baby. Oh, you better, you better. <laughs> I you gamed might, the system. You might want to do a couple more Hail Marys <laughs> with that, that confession right there. <laughs> well, and, and what, that's one of the beautiful things that I've... So growing up Catholic, I had a certain idea of confession. And, and even I can remember as like a teenager thinking it was a, a silly thing to do. But that's because in, in that context, it's so uh, whitewashed isn't the word, but it's sort of um, oh, formulaic. Oh yeah, I to mechanize. Yeah, almost, I guess would be yeah. good. Like you're supposed to. It's kind of contrived. Yeah, confess on these days, and and so if you're not really, if I, if me as the confessor, if I'm not really stepping into it in an authentic way, yeah, it's just a form. And even there's, <laughs> I so I went to confession one time, and and I was trying to step into it in a very authentic way, and I was sharing. Uh, with this retired, it was a retired person of the clergy, and uh, similar to what you're saying, you know, having some in, inappropriate sexual thoughts, and uh, and his first question to me when I was done confessing was asking me if I'd ever thought of getting married. Wow, that's odd. <laughs> it was the weirdest. It was the – and, you know, the point – and he he went on to say some other things, but the point being like, oh, well, if you get married, then yeah, then you're going to be all right. Yeah. <laughs> it was just – it was it, it was like I was there being as authentic as I could be, and then I got this guy that, you know, he's he's celibate. He's yeah. He's like, oh, what – what, you know, which, which is the Protestant – critique of that you know that's, right, yeah and they're also saying only god can forgive sins or you know mm-hmm. you shouldn't have a mediator there but then they go too far the other way where you know, they don't really embrace it there's at all. no yeah uh illuminated relationship there's no mm-hmm. authentic vulnerability between people which in so this was 
the the part where I've fallen in love with this idea of confession, um, even though we don't use that word, but in 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 the recovery circles, one of the, step five is to sit down. You sit down with another human being and your higher power, and you lay it all out there. All those things yeah. that you have shame about, guilt about. Um, you just put that out. Yeah, there. as you're ready. Yeah, and. You know, at the time I didn't, the first time I did it, I didn't realize that I was, I was going into a confession, but not with a priest. I was doing it with another alcoholic, exactly. with another, you know, another person in a 12 step program. And at the end he turns around um, and it's actually, his name's Marco is actually the guy that the, to thine own self be true. He turned around and said, yeah, man, me too. And he mm. shared some of the stuff that he had done in his drinking and using and his uh, even in sobriety, you know, because just because we get sober, like we're, we still mess things up. And and he shared some of the things that he had done in his past that were similar to the things that, I, you know, and I thought they were the worst things ever yeah, to be done. Yeah. And approaching this idea of confession. And, and I only use that word in this context. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go into a 12-step group and use those, that word. Right. But effectively, that's what's going on. And it's such a – to share, to be on the, the confessor and sitting on the other side and hearing the confession. Um, it's one of the most beautiful things yeah. because when I've been able to listen, Powerful. I too have been able to be like, okay, and these are the things I did that are similar to you and, and, and open, you know, and it goes back to that vulnerability, yeah. building that trust yeah. and that vulnerability in order to um, effectively pull it off. Yeah. And that's what's so powerful about AA is that it, it begins with your unworthiness, with a confession of your worth, unworthiness. I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. You confess that at the very beginning mm-hmm. and that unworthiness and that vulnerability becomes why you're there. And, Whereas often church gets it backwards, where it's your worthiness that that you're, you're uh, buys your your belonging. Yeah, I'm worthy, therefore I belong. And it's it was it's, it was never meant to be that way. The the Lord's table or the Eucharist communion, uh, it's because you're hungry. It's because mm-hmm. you're lacking. It's because you're unworthy. Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but you have spoken the word, and you are mm-hmm. the word, and I am healed. Uh, that should be the basis of our fellowship and friendship and relationship, not my prerequisited worthiness because I went through. I went to this school. Yeah. Or had I had this socioeconomic status. Yeah, I went and got cleansed somehow. And so, so do you think that that shift, and I guess we can only really speak uh, in regards to American Christianity, but do you think that connects back to this idea of, of idolizing the individual? Yeah. Well, I think it's a universal ego thing. Okay. So I have a, I have a spiritual a experience, thing. you know, so whether it's, I have a born again experience, I accept Jesus Christ, my personal Lord and savior, and I really am transformed and, or uh, I realize I'm an alcoholic and I call out to the higher power and I, and I stopped, um, all of a sudden I'm not drinking anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's, so you might have a, a supernatural awakening or a, an experience. Um, 
And but what happens is the ego will soon take it over and interpret what happened, and then all of a sudden you have this sense of superiority. Uh, in fact, there was just a, a study. These two Dutch researchers submitted a paper in Europe about uh, the spiritual but not religious crowd, mm-hmm. but it, it works for uh, religious people as well. Uh, and they found that, so they assumed, they began with the assumption that a spiritual practice like meditation, mindfulness, energy, uh, chakra studying would make you, uh, would, would set you free from the ego and bring a, a certain humility to you. But it actually does the opposite mm. at some point where you actually see yourself as superior to others and you actually have condescension towards other people uh, who aren't like you. And so I think it's a, so since it, it, it crosses barriers from Christianity to Buddhism, because Buddhism right, addresses any, this issue. Yeah, it's uh, any denomination. Yeah, and it's, and it's the spiritual religion. but not religious secular group as well. Anybody that does, you know, vegetarians tend to let you know they're a vegetarian. Cyclist. Uh, yeah, exactly. CrossFit people <laughs> tend to let you know uh, that, did I remind you I'm, on, I'm in CrossFit, you know, and... Uh, so it's it's I think it's a human ego right. pride kind of thing. Sort of sort of staking out your tribe. Yeah, you over-identify really... with your practice or, or your whatever it is that you, you know. And, and Jonathan Haidt has done a lot of work on that, yeah. right? Uh, right? That our brains are wired for self righteousness. We need this. We have this this innate need to feel better than others. Well, and I, I think too it was it was very important. To over-identify with, you know, if you think about when we were on the plains of Africa, we needed to over-identify with our group because if you became an outcast of your group. Yeah, it was over for you. Yeah, you're, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have these, yeah, those genetic tendencies for sure. It's a survival instinct. And, and you know, and on a certain level, I'm sure it serves us on certain things, but, but yeah. in the spiritual realm especially when you get into that idea of being condescending to those yeah. that are, are trying to, to also seek. Yeah. You know, they just want a relationship with a, with a God or a higher power and to, to sort of turn your nose up to them or, yeah. or sort of edge them out of the conversation, so to speak. Uh, that, that to make insiders, dangerous. to make outsiders. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what's one of the astounding questions. Why is it that, Universally and historically, those that are the most religious, those that are the most, uh, those that are the most literate in the Bible, those are the most, uh, the ones that are the most committed to their church, end up being the least loving people. Mm. Why is that? You know, and that's they're not the exception; they're the rule. You know, yeah. you see it in the Gospels. Jesus up against the the spiritual superstars. Well, you see, I mean, you see it even back in the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can go from as far back as however far dated the the Hebrew scriptures are to, to present yeah. day. Yeah, I think that's the Cain and Abel story, what it's about. Uh, it's it, mm. it, not, it wasn't religious as much as it was, uh, I mean, there was a religious aspect, right. the offering and all that, but right. there's the, Him and the anthropological aspect to it. Uh, one was uh, a hunter-gatherer right. and the other yeah, one was, was, was starting agriculture. Mm-hmm. Well, the agricul- the Aggies were better <laughs> than you animal people, uh, you husbandry people, <laughs> you, you, you know. You, you hunter types. Yeah, and that's it's a struggle in the early early humanity. That's what that's a story right. about, you know. Um, and so so to, we, we touched on it a little bit early on and uh, 
I, I, I want to revisit it because I think it's important, especially in this idea of things that are maybe overlooked. Uh, but uh, Richard Foster definitely talks about the importance of silence. Mm, yeah. And I know we talked about it last week, but maybe you could uh, just sort of uh, integrate or, or give the listeners sort of the, the Richard Foster um, take, if you will, or yeah. your interpretation of his take on silence. Yeah, well, he was probably the first author that I read outside of the mystics in catechism, mm. the, the traditional Catholic mystics. But I didn't really understand them, you know. And, and, and even in my late 20s, early 30s, reading Thomas Merton, I didn't really understand. I loved what he was saying. I didn't have an idea what he was saying. <laughs> I just couldn't get a clue. You felt uh, connected to whatever Very was connected, saying, right? yeah. But yet uh, not really understanding what exactly he was saying. And so Foster and Richard Rohr and Thomas Keating in particular really unpacked the language of contemplation in a way that I could understand, at least. Henry Nouwen as well. Right. Uh, and, 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 and where I could practice it, you know. So as a teenager, it was more, uh, you know, in, in our church anyway at that time, it was encouraged, get your quiet time with God, which mm. was get up in the morning and get, open your Bible and sit quietly with God, you know, quiet time. And, mm-hmm. and it was just seen as a, a small little thing that you did, you know. And, and nowadays, all of a sudden, they're against contemplation, it seems. Uh, mm. uh, I guess because it's the wrong group, uh, you know, encouraging it. Um, and so, yeah, it just seems like more people are, it seems like they'll, they'll say yes to quiet time, but when you say silent prayer, that now that then they all of a sudden they get you, upset. You silence yeah. Prayer. So it's, you, just, uh, you switch the word slightly. Yeah. And people, or use the word contemplation. People yeah, get even, even the cagey about it. Uh, the M word meditation. Oh yeah. Yeah. In meditation Christian circles. You can, you can get some pretty good pushback. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, because they they think it's uh, transcendental meditation, and mm-hmm. you, you know the Beatles sitting with uh, the yogi kind of thing. And, I once had, and a it's good, not that. I once had a good friend, uh, and he told me he said he did. I don't remember the time period, but he he did some transcendental meditation, and he proceeded to tell me. Uh, that he was being attacked by demons mm, yeah. because of the... Everyone's got that story. Transcendental meditation. Yeah. And it, you know, I, I didn't push back because that's his experience, right? Like right. maybe that did happen for him. But um, but yeah, it just it was very interesting, this idea of like... Yeah. Uh, uh, and I, and I, I can't speak to transcendental meditation because I've never done it. So right. I you know, I don't know what, what it's about, but it, it seems unlikely to me that... No, I've heard the extremes of both. Yeah, the, yeah. the guy got attacked by demons and then on one end and the other one that was levitating right, right, on the right, other right, end. Right, yeah, okay. Really? There, right, yeah. Yeah, I swear to God, I yeah. saw them levitating. Yeah. You're like, wow, did you get that on video? Everything else is on video yeah, these you days. Yeah, you can find everything on YouTube. <laughs> but they can't yeah, seem to like, find Bigfoot or... People levitating while doing TM. They don't seem to catch those on video. Or as Mitch Hedgeberg said, maybe Bigfoot is already blurry. And that's why he comes out <laughs> blurry on every, every video. Yeah. Is also, uh, rest in peace, Mitch Hedberg. Yes, God bless you. Uh, what a great, funny uh, man. Uh, comedian and philosopher for sure. Yeah, St. Mitch. So this, uh, this we could call this uh, 
part of the episode, the uh, the communist uh, part of the episode. But <laughs> Richard Foster really uh, digs in and, and thinks highly. Uh, I don't think he thinks highly. I think his experience is, has paid off for him in the sense that this is how he wants to engage life. But um, the idea of simplicity, um, but but more uh, one of the quotes that um, you picked out, that's a Richard Foster quote, um, talks about lust for afflu- afflu- affluence. Yeah, no, yeah. Hold on. His quote talks about the lust for afflu- affluence. <laughs> I <think laughs> get it. Uh, so maybe you could um, unpack that a little bit. Yeah, so that was very formational for me because in the mid-80s, the it's culture the was very the, – the lust for affluence was was huge. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and to identify with, with possessions and, and to be up, upwardly mobile, uh, to become a yuppie. What's, what's the uh, quote from the movie, Greed is Good? Greed is good, yeah. What was that? I forget the. It's a stock market movie. Uh, yeah. Charlie for, Machines in and out. I forgot the name. Yeah, me too. Uh, and so, yeah, and so to hear that voice, the call to simplicity was was pretty, pretty formational for me at that time, and um, and has remained with me. You know, that's part of why we came out here to form this community. Was part of it was to live a life of simplicity. Um, and to at least pursue simplicity, we we uh, didn't feel like poverty. The 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 vow of poverty mm. that traditional monastics would take right. was was for us, but we definitely felt the call to simplicity and uh, and to not use spirituality to gain possessions. And that's mm. very popular. I, I would guess that's probably the most popular form of Christianity. Just sort of Today, that consumer-based Christianity yeah, that, that we've talked about. Yeah, on that God episodes. is that that if you follow Jesus, uh, the purpose of following Jesus is to put your life enveloped in cotton, where you will not suffer uh, trials and tribulations, uh, and and you'll gain material possessions uh, and you'll gain social status, and then all these are opposite of what Jesus uh, pursued and demonstrated. They're the very things that he was tempted with yeah. in the wilderness. And, and so, so to hear that early Quaker call of simplicity and then, of course, the, and the liberation theology of, uh, in the Catholic Church and the call of uh, Dorothy Day and, and uh, the Catholic worker movement definitely resonated with me early on. Well, and it, it, the thing that popped in my mind is that, you know, in the, the biblical story where the guy's like, I've I've done all the commandments, Jesus. Now what? Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, get rid of all your stuff and, and let's come hang out. Like, let's go walk yeah. around uh, the Middle East together. The guy's like, well, yeah, maybe not. Let me, <laughs> let me sleep on that one. I mean, it's an Escalade. <laughs> I'm driving an Escalade, Jesus. But it, it's a diamond necklace with your face on yeah. it, Jesus. Doesn't doesn't that count for something? Yeah. So it's yeah. It's, it's not. It's still not a. It's a countercultural. Call. I think that is the the prophetic call of the gospel today, even to this day. I mean, it's always been been that way, but you know, but in particular times in history, like with Francis of Assisi and Dominic, uh, where the church grew very rich and very powerful, mm. these prophetic voices emerge, and uh, I think the Spirit does it that way. You know, the church was was very corrupt and powerful and rich at the time of uh, Francis of Assisi. 
Oh, right, yeah. And so God yeah, raises up these sure. voices in the wilderness, so to speak. Yeah, and in contemporary, it's not like Francis got, I mean, he did get elevated in a sense after he passed away. Right. He was well known in his time yeah. as well. Which was miraculous because right. at that time they would have uh, taken a good, and they did take many like him and they mm. they suppressed them, tortured them, and even uh, had them put to death. In fact, it's my understanding that the French, that poverty-based uh, fellowships, poverty-based movements were uh, were banned after Francis died. Mm-hmm. After they 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 made the Franciscans and the and the Dominicans uh, an official and the Clares too, right? All around, yeah, the same yeah, Clares. Uh, there's so many of them, right? But they began to yeah ban them. Well, and and I think it's a, the reason I wanted to bring this up last is because I think it's important to touch on this lust for. Um, for power, for gain, for uh, property, prestige, all, you know, we yeah, the list goes yeah. on and on. Um, because when we're recording, so this probably, this probably won't come out until sometime in 2021, but as we record this, we're sitting right between Thanksgiving, which is famous for the, the huge shopping holiday, Black right, Friday, right. Cyber Monday, all this, which, you know, we, according to the statistics this year, broke records for most money spent on those days. And Christmas, where it's all about, uh, in popular terms, it's all about giving presents, receiving yeah, presents, yeah. Who, who gives the best presents, who, you know, look what I got. Yeah, the guy dreaming of a Cadillac in his driveway with, with a giant ball. <laughs> Ridiculous. But so, so, so we're very much right in the middle of it. We're also living in the richest country. You know, you and I are living in the richest country. So these things are very important. On a, on a popular sense. Yeah. And so, to, like you're saying, to examine that counter idea, that counter culture of... Um, yeah, get rich or die trying. Exactly. You know, that's our... That's... that's uh, From every level of our society, whether it's... That's the impoverished mindset and that's the wealthy mindset. You know, it, it transcends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so to just un- unpack that... Uh, like you're saying, the prophetic voice within that of like, uh, maybe maybe there's another way to look at how we engage uh, life. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, the, the you don't need all these things that will end up uh, owning you. Everything you own ends up owning you. And, you know, and it's the heart of violence, to be honest with you. You know, the moment I commit to owning something, then I also commit to protecting that the ownership of that thing and so then the questions of violence and uh protection and uh property rights and the whole thing and that's the root of all violence in the end right and so yeah either protecting what you have or or trying to gain yeah something you don't have that you you feel you have some kind of right to yeah and that's how america was built right and so the gospel's a countercultural call, for sure. A prophetic call from the from the outer rims, from the from the uh, from the margins, you know, from the bottom, not from the top. So, well, it's interesting too. Of as far as you know, thinking, thinking, taking that gospel idea that you're talking about, you know, that love and embracing those on the fringes, and and how do you? Well, the, <laughs> this is a very um, marketing-esque way of putting it, but how do you package that up so that it can reach 
those in power to reach those um, that have the ability to possibly change something. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't know if you do. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know if that's. Possible. I think that's what the early church is asking in, in in the uh, New Testament, or even Christ Himself. Yeah, exactly. I think He probably uh, pondered those things and wrestled with those things, um, and articulated in a way that got Him killed. Yeah, exactly. His uh, His counterculture uh, approach to it. Um, you I'm know, trying got, to got Him crucified. Trying to find a, a quote, but I'll just have to do it. It's I can't find it, but it, it, there's a Methodist writer, Methodist pastor, and in, in the I forget his name, so f- forgive me. But he, he basically says Jesus's life did not go well. He didn't find his soulmate. He didn't reach his earning potential. Uh, he did not have the respect of his friends and uh, and uh, comrades and his family. And yet, I think I deserve all of these things because I'm spiritual. Mm. And uh, yeah, so it's it's the heart of the gospel, yeah. uh, and it's one of those pitfalls that spiritual disciplines can uh, that you, that you have to deal with, you know. Right, they'll lead you to that pitfall. Yeah, and then hopefully that same discipline can dig you out of exactly. That it's very paradoxical and get you to the <laughs> other side of that, the humble side of it. Yeah, the broken down side of it. So, uh, Mr. Morrison. We've thrown together, thrown together another hour-long conversation. Wow. Um, thank you for your time and, and enlightening us on some of these things that uh, Richard Foster uh, highly recommend. I, I personally highly recommend uh, Celebration of Disciplines. Um, also the other book, Streams of Living Water by Richard Foster. Uh, if you have time to get it on Audible or go yeah. travel down to your used bookstore and see if they, they got a hard copy in uh in stock but uh yeah support your local bookstores for yeah, sure for sure uh that's thank you once again uh everyone that's listened that's downloaded um our uh weekly plug of uh leave us a rating and a review on apple podcast <laughs> or google podcast we would appreciate that and uh yeah if you'd like to say any yeah, thank you no, thank you all for listening appreciate it And have a beautiful day.